Hello, TSF family. We wanted to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and for your hard work to love yourself more and for your feedback. Can you believe it's been three years that we've been doing this spiritual fix and it has been such a beautiful labor of love for Anna and me. We have loved doing this work. We've loved hearing from you and we love exploring ourselves and each other alongside our listeners. We wanted to put out the call for three ways that you can help support us to support you. One, we would love you to leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Two, drop us an email and let us know how much the podcast means to you. And three, you can donate monthly or even just once to our PayPal patronage. Every little bit helps and we are so grateful to those of you who have donated already. Thank you. You help make this podcast possible. Thanks, y'all. You can go to our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com for information on how to pledge as well as to email us. Hello and welcome to this Spiritual Fix episode 19, season four. Today we are doing part three of four on trauma. We are covering flight, freeze, and fight. Stay tuned for some great info. This spiritual fix. Two mystical mamas hacking the self-help game. With Anna Stromquist and Christina Wilson. Hi, y'all. We wanted to give you a disclaimer and trigger warning about this episode, as well as all the episodes in the trauma series in which we will be talking about domestic violence and other issues along those lines, which could be triggering to people. We wanted to give you the number of the United States Domestic Violence Hotline, which is 1-800-799-7233, as well as encourage you to go onto Wikipedia and search for domestic violence hotlines for local numbers in any country in which that service is available. Love y'all. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Anna. Hey, Christina. How are you? I am living the dream of Mercury retrograde right now. What do you mean? Just, you know, it's funny because I'm like experiencing a lot of technical difficulties, but I'm not really reacting strongly to them anymore. But yeah, so we had obviously had the thing last week with the the episode and then just like random things aren't working when you would expect them to. And I'm just like, yeah, that's okay. Totally good. I'm just flowing through this time. How about you? What's going on with you? Well, it's funny because I was like, I was like in such a good space with the Leanne stuff, you know, mm-hmm. the um, Galela Collective course I'm taking. And then I've been like, kind of like down and like mopey and like moving, processing all this stuff. And I'm like, what's going on? And then I'm like, oh, we're recording the Father Wound series and then the trauma series back to back. Like, of course, I'm not in my normal chipper happy state. Because <laughs> really we're intense. like, I'm like, why, why are we doing this again? What, 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 why, what do we, we, are we addicted to making ourselves suffer? Like, why the fuck do we do this? And then I have to think, no, there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Not, not only that, but I feel like for me, I, I feel as if there's been an elephant in my room or I haven't been activating my Ganesha, right? Like in the sense of he's the remover of obstacles. I feel like I've had this obstacle in my space for quite some time and doing the father wound and then doing trauma right after it have allowed me to do kind of to a double whammy to really like get this thing out of my system. But I'm 
I'm like, I'm thinking about season five since we're almost to the end of season four. And I'm like, hmm, okay. <laughs> what can we do that, that that's, you know, more work or whatever, you know, it's, it's a pretty interesting Oh, concept since we're the, we're the guinea pigs, right? all right. Well, I had a little update on the father wound. My father actually listened to that first episode because he, I told, he started it and I told him, don't listen to it. He's like, tell me when you're ready. And I was finally like, fine, I'm just ready. Like I just pull the bandaid off and have my dad listen to it. And I was really like upset to share it with him because my dad is a good person. He raised four kids on his own after my mom died and, and worked full time. And, and I know he loves all of us and he is such an amazing role model in so many ways. He's an artist. He's awesome. But I had like all this guilt about sharing the story about when he told me not to take his car to Mexico, right. And take my shitty car that was dangerous. And he listened to the episode and he called me up and he's like, okay, I want to just clarify some stuff. And I was like, okay. And he's like, well, first of all, when your mom died, I thought I only had like 18 years left to live because all the men on his side of the family never lived past 65. So he's like, by the time you were a teenager, I was like, I've got 15 more years to live and I need to make my kids as independent and autonomous as possible. So he, like he says, you know, like are we talk in that episode, how the father provides power, protection, and guidance. He's like, I, I consciously chose not to provide guidance or protection power. I think is more like you're born with it, but he's like, I consciously chose not to give you those things because I had it in my head that I was going to die soon. And you guys needed to learn how to make it in the world without me. And then like, it just brought up all these sad feelings of like, well, it wasn't in my head that I raised myself and like how, yeah. and then like all this injustice of like, well, God, like, first of all, my mom's sick. And then she dies. So like, I don't have a mom. And then I have a father who's like consciously choosing not to be, not to take care of me so that I can make it in the world. And like the whole car analogy is he was thinking Anna will come to, Anna will find a solution on her own if I present it this way. And she will decide not to go because her car is unsafe or she'll find her friend to get the car. So like he had it in him that I wasn't supposed to drive that, you know, dangerous car to Mexico, but he didn't guide me he didn't protect me instead he kind of like let me come to that conclusion on my own because he was consciously ch choosing to make me autonomous right and like so he did all these things out of love then I just think of like all the fucking fucking fucked up things I've gone through because I wasn't properly protected or guided like all the mini t's like all the t traumas with the lowercase t yeah. of like sexual inappropriateness because I didn't know men were predators you know like just just like all the little things I, I learned through experience. And I really wish I had to learn if someone had just fucking guided me or, or, or protected me. And I was really upset. And I was like, I feel, I feel kind of cheated. I feel like, mm -hmm. I feel like it sucks. And then I, and then, you know, then there's the other part of me who's like, well, Anna, you know, at least your dad didn't abuse you. Like think of all the kids who lost their parent or their mom. And then like the dad abused them or neglected them. Like at least he was doing something out of love. And, um, you know, just like wrestling with, and also feeling bad for my dad of like, well, God, imagine your wife dies and you're taking care of four kids and you're trying to keep social services from taking them away or family members are trying to split them up. And you think you're going to die in 15 years and the horrible sadness of that. Like, you know, like there was just like so many co painful conversations I'm having with my different parts of like, you know, 
feeling empathetic towards my dad and then like feeling empathetic towards me and all the shit I went through because I literally feel like I've raised myself since I was nine since my mom got sick and it's just dealing with all that this week is just a, like this trauma episode bring has brought up a lot of little teas like I think of all the horrible situations I've been in where I wasn't you know rape with a capital t but like I was put in very shitty situations with the lowercase t because I just didn't know better you know yeah and um and I just think oh my god I, I could have avoided so many things if someone had just had a heart-to-heart -heart talk to me yeah <sighs> and yeah. I just so I've just been dealing with that this week like you know I love and forgive my dad but I'm also just I'm just kind of I just kind of feel like I, I've been I was I was dealt with a shitty hand and then I also on the 60 level, I'm like, well, I was dealt exactly what I needed to deal with because it's made me who I am. And I have the beautiful life that I have now because of everything I went through. And like, there's just like a lot of different conversations going on in my head right now of, of gratitude, but also sadness, you know? Yeah. So that's where I am in the middle of this trauma series. Yeah. <laughs> and what about you? How are you dealing with the trauma series? Well, it's been difficult in some ways because, well, for me, you know, I've, I've kind of alluded to this kind of event that happened a couple of weeks ago, and I'll tell, talk more about it in the episode. But, you know, I think this past week after recording the trauma bonding episode, I, and I mentioned this there that like, it just like opened up this dam of of trauma in my physical body, right? So like, I've just been feeling physical pain and sickness and like all the body betrayal stuff that I try to avoid on a regular basis. It's just like come out of the woodwork and it's like headaches and, and joint pain and, you know, like just muscle pain and just all sorts of bullshit. It's not bullshit. It's my body releasing trauma physically. And I, I had an opportunity to go away with my partner for the weekend without kids. And we just, we had like three days without anybody. And the whole time I was just like, I kind of feel like doing nothing. Like I'm in the, I'm in the middle of like writing, writing a book about kind of counterdependency and getting back into your body. And I was like, don't want to fucking write that. I'm just going to do nothing. And I literally sat and both, both of us did, both of us just sat and did nothing. And I was just like, I'm going to feel all of this coming out of my body and it's totally okay. And I like went and saw the therapist that I've seen with it, like when I've been in like kind of relationship therapy with people and, and, you know, she was like validating in the same way that you validated it right after it happened and it just felt so validated clear what? validated abuse. The, the abuse yeah validated the abuse and validated the boundaries and validated all that kind of stuff and it was like i was slipping a lot right like afterwards after the event that happened i was like i'm so clear this is so obvious like nothing could be more clear i am creating this boundary and i'm fucking sticking to it Right. And then, you know, how long passes a month passes, passes <laughs> a month passes and I'm second guessing as to whether or not I'm being too harsh and whether or not this person, you know, deserves the boundary that I'm creating and hearing that from a 
from a therapist like help me like reinvigorate and like shore up my boundary and like be like yeah that is totally obvious to everybody else in the world except for me because it became normalized for me did you tell this person that you are making the boundary no and then you, how often do you interact with them and then how often are you now like what what is it looking like it's not really it's more like emotional distance in the sense that like it's more just emotional distance but it's always been that like that's been kind of created in our lives because of the fact that we know that this happens but it wasn't it was more like a the idea was that it was mutual abuse that was kind of the the overwhelming scenario like even as a kid it was considered that i was just difficult and therefore go, growing up like we needed to be separate because we would both drive each other crazy right so it wasn't seen as like hey you shouldn't be treating a kid like this but like hey actually I was kind of treated like an adult and like I should like I am just as culpable for the things that were happening because of whatever reason so you know and then as I grew to be an adult that became an even stronger story because I am an adult and therefore I should I am you know totally responsible for however I am when I get into that space with that person right so in other words like when you're a kid you have the excuse of being a kid for like why you're being irresponsible or reacting in a certain way or you know oh because you just don't know any better and your brain hasn't developed and then as you get older and older and older that excuse goes away so then it really turns what was responsive abuse which we're going to talk about today turns into mutual abuse do you know what i'm trying to say can you kind of like summarize basically you were taught to believe that your reactive abuse was a sign that you were crazy and deserving of the abuse you got. Right. And you believed it yourself. Right. And that I was actually, it was actually a mutual abuse situation. Like, remember when we talked about that the other day, I was like, can kids do mutual abuse? And I think you were like, no, that's yeah. Not. When there's a difference in power, when there's a power dynamic going on, the, it can never be mutual. Like a child, it's like saying, that's like the pedophile saying, well, she wanted it. She enticed me or she seduced me. No, the, oh, the five-year-old did not seduce the grandfather and the seven-year-old did not bring on the abuse that they got with verbal or emotional abuse. Like children are not capable of abuse. Right. In the, in the traditional or, sense. Or consent or consent, you know. Right, right. I think, yeah. Or, or another example would be something like, you know, you're in an ableism or other kind of situation in which you're facing some sort of discrimination. And like, the idea is that like, you're being persecuted because of your, the, you know, the color of your skin or because of, you know, your gender identity or something along those lines. And then you're retaliating and that's reactive abuse and not mutual abuse because the power differential is so different, right? So like, you know, in a, like in a place- Like Harvey Weinstein or, or, exactly. or like a boss. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the point being that like, as I recognize, like it, it becomes harder to justify that you aren't mutually abusive as you get older because you stop, you're like, well, I'm an adult. So the power differential is different now. But what you don't realize is that you actually never grew up right? Like you're still like every time you get in an argument with that person as you grow up and every time you get into like a, you know, an abusive situation with someone as you grow up, like you're still acting like you did when you were a kid because there's a like a form of arrested development. At least that's the case with me. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Like my age may say that I'm 39, 
but that doesn't mean that I'm not sitting there as like a 10 year old girl whenever I get in that same situation again with that person, right? It's really, really hard to grow up and to be an adult and to not react in a certain way or not do a certain thing because of it. So yeah, that's, it's, it's still kind of jumbled and a little bit, but you know, we're going to talk about some of it today and I'll kind of clarify what I'm talking about. So, yeah. So today, like last week we were talking about the fawn response, which was trauma bonding. And that might've been a big can of worms opening for a lot of people, because I don't know about you, but you know, I'd heard of trauma bonding, but I didn't really know what it was. And then when I, when I learned about it, like when I researched that book to prepare for the episode, I was like, oh my God, like I could see it so clearly in so many people, like my own experience dating a narcissist. Um, and then just seeing like some people that I know who've been divorced, like now understanding, understanding the whole dynamic of the trauma bond. And then like knowing some people who are in like really shitty relationships and understanding why they're still in them. So it just kind of was really, really helpful for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it, it gave access, meaning it made people feel things that were listening because I think it's a lot more prevalent than you think, you know? I completely agree. So, oh, so anyways, so yeah. So anyways, last week we talked about fawn response and today we're talking about the fight, flight and freeze response. And then what that looks like in your daily life and what that looks like on the soul level, what that looks like in relationships. So yeah. Yeah. Whew. You ready to rumble? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. Let me get my notes up. I was going to start with reactive. Abuse. Yep. Yep. Go for it. Okay. Okay. So looking at the, the basics, you probably already know that when trauma happens, we have natural responses, usually because your body detects a threat, your brain and autonomic nervous system react quickly. We release hormones like cortisol, adrenaline, and then we trigger these cascades of behaviors. And as we talked previously, if you experience trauma and then these reactions on a regular basis, they can actually change the structure of your brain and you can actually get into these patterns. The analogy I gave last week was imagine that trauma is a bucket and we fill it up. Some people with a cup, some people with a tablespoon, sometimes it's half a bucket. And eventually that bucket fill, fills to the brim with, with water or trauma. And then someone walking by really fast can make the water tip over or overflow or someone, you know, you get into a small little argument and someone just puts two drops of water in the bucket and boom, you know, this, this, this whole cascade response because the bucket's full. So the body is going to respond in ways to protect you. Those being fawn, fight, flight, or freeze. Fawn is the trauma bond or fawn is like, you know, I'm going to appease my abuser. I'm going to be sweet and cute and make my abuser love me. And that way they won't hurt me. Right. Fight is I'm going to attack back. Flight is I'm running away and freeze is I'm going to play dead because that way no one will kill me. So, so basically that's, that's it in a nutshell. And then we're going to go into a little more more depth with it. So I'm going to do fight and then Christina will do flight and freeze. So with fight, what it might look like fight being, okay, you know, hundreds of years ago, you know, let's say we were out in the, in the prairie or wherever Savannah and a lion's coming and we have to fight so that we can't flee. We're in a situation where we can't flee. And so we fight. And so adrenaline pumps, it's going to increase your heart rate. You're going to start sweating. You're going to have all this, you know, 
attack energy in you basically. And so then you can fight the lion off, right? And so what that would look like in daily life is let's say something happens at work and you might argue with your coworker because they treated you unfairly, or let's say you're stuck in traffic and you're getting really annoyed because the person isn't letting you in or whatever. You might flip them off or start honking on your horn. Other things it might look like is, you know, you take up a kickboxing class to release that, or, you know, you see it with children, they get upset, you give them a pillow and they start punching it, you know? So, so those are kind of basic examples of what fight looks like. And then and and that's also equivalent to the sympathetic nervous system coming in and mobilization, right? So mobilization is a fight, more of a fight response, right? Where you're basically become very active in your stress right. response. Right. So you have your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic is, I like to think of it S equals stress, you know, and parasympathetic, I like to think of P equals peace. That's how I remembered it in school. So it's like parasympathetic is peaceful, relaxed energy and sympathetic is stressful, you know, high energy. Yeah. So the fight response stems from an unconscious belief that if you maintain power and control over others, you will be safe and you will be accepted. And this response is supposedly common, more common when caregivers didn't pr provide you with healthy limits or gave you what you asked for, used the humiliation womb to control you, or they were themselves narcissistic or bullying. So some things that look like, so from this article, which I'm going to post online, these are some things that can look like the fight response. Making a public social media post after your partner cheats on you to let everyone know what they did. Shouting at a friend when they accidentally mention something you want to keep private, spreading a rumor about a coworker who criticized your work, refusing to speak with your partner for a week because they lost your favorite sunglasses. Okay. So that's kind of what it looks like. And then I want to go into something called reactive abuse, which I think is really important and it ties really well into last week's topic of trauma bonding. So there is this concept of mutual abuse and reactive abuse. Mutual abuse is when two people abuse each other and experts believe that this is actually not true because abusers will not ever let themselves be abused. They are, they're all about the power dynamic and they're not going to ever really stay or attract someone who's also abusing them. So most people think it doesn't even happen. And then what is reactive abuse? Reactive abuse is when someone has pushed you, pushed you, pushed you, pushed you, and you finally react. There's like this sound going on on TikTok and it's like, did you remember when I was nice and I was nice and I was nice again, and then I was nice and then I was nice and then I was nice again. You don't remember that, do you? You know, there's that, that audio going around and it's a perfect example of retaliation or reactive abuse where the partner exploits, abuses, or takes advantage of you over and over and over again. And then when you finally fight back, you're the asshole and you have to face all these consequences. So some examples would be that like, you are pimped out or you're sexually trafficked at a young age. And then one day you decide to kill your pimp and then you go to jail for it. Right. Or you've been abused, 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 and then you kill your abuser or your parent or whatever. And then you're in trouble for it. Or you're the asshole. More minor things might look like retaliation to an abuser might be like spitting in their coffee, not doing the chore that you signed up to do in retaliation. Hmm. You know, like, yeah, kind that's, of that's a good one. I used to talk to you about that. Remember that one, the chore one, right? Like I would ask Luke to do something and not that I was necessarily abuser, but like I was trying to control him, right? I was trying to be like something like that. And he'd be like, uh-huh, I'm going to do that. And then he would just do it his own way, like completely. So, and you said you did the same thing, right? With like 
just someone who was trying to control you, not even necessarily a narcissistic abuser, right? Do you remember that? What? No. What did I do? I don't remember. It was. It was like. Was it? It was like if if Eric didn't. It was about the karate thing. It was like about the piano lesson or the karate thing, where it was like he was supposed to do something oh. for you. Do you know what I'm okay. talking about? This I would actually say was an example of boundaries. It was like we. Eric signed the kids up for Taekwondo. And I was like, I already do enough. I already do. I like, I already drive them everywhere. If you want to sign them up for Taekwondo, you're going to be in charge of getting them to their lesson and getting them dressed. Mm -hmm. But then he would like not do it or forget or whatever. And I would just refuse to take them. And so we lost money doing that because I was just like, well, I'm, it, I, I'm not doing it, but I don't think that's retaliation because I never signed up for doing it. No, that's yeah, that's totally yeah. different. Yeah. So that was a boundary, but retaliation might look like, well, he didn't take them to karate, so I'm not going to take them to piano. Yeah, I get but you. But I, I didn't do that, and that's really fucked up to the kids. Anyways, so why is reactive abuse so important in a trauma bond? Well, actually, abusers rely on it because it's in this reactive abuse that they finally have proof that you're crazy, and they'll even like take out their phone and record you. I know of a situation where the husband was abusive, and when the, the wife finally fought back, he called the police on her like yeah right yeah fucking crazy it's a it's a way to manipulate because what happens is the abuser then can claim that they're the one being abused and since the abuser doesn't really experience remorse regret or guilt when the abuser is reprimanded for their behavior it's usually crocodile tears phony apologies and false promises okay but when the victim abuses quote unquote abuses there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of, well, I deserve all the, the behavior, the treatment I can get. I'm going to believe him when he says no one will love you like I do, or no one will put up with you the way that I do, et cetera, et cetera. So one hallmark feature of it is like, when you start abusing the abuser, they might get calm and actually happy because they're like, ha ha ha. Now she's like acting crazy and I can prove it. Right. And so it, it, it causes you to believe that you deserve violent, unstable, treatment or emotional manipulation because you are an asshole because you know you spit in his coffee or you know you yelled at him when he cheated on you or you were doing you were you know you were checking his phone because you didn't believe because he'd been gaslighting you about cheating or something you know it's like yeah. you end up looking like the crazy person because you are retaliating and it's really important to understand that that in itself the guilt that you feel for doing it is what's keeping you locked in there because then you think you deserve the, the abuse you're getting. Right. And so a slightly less narcissistic version of this, because I feel like reactive abuse can happen a lot, is, you know, I've been talking um, a lot on TikTok at the moment about uh, counterdependency. And counterdependency is like this really interesting thing because for codependents and people with abandonment wounds, you know, the counterdependents are the people with the betrayal wounds, like they can come across as either completely removed or very controlling, right? And the, I mean, both, let's let's face it, both codependents and counterdependents can be very, you know, controlling, but the mask of betrayal is control. And one of the things that we find a lot is that, you know, for a counterdependent, they're trying to control their environment in the avoidance of pain right? Because that's like the thing that they're just trying to not have happen the most, right? And so they may control their life to the nth degree because they're just like, I need to keep everything in a, at a distance or I need to plan it or I need to make sure that it's not going to hurt me and it's not going to hurt. Like, I'm not going to be in a situation where I like have to feel something that I don't want to feel. 
And, you know, that's very different than a narcissist in a lot of ways, right? Because you're basically they're they've become hypersensitized to pain to the point where they're just, they don't even want to interact with life or they want to control life to the nth degree. So like that person, and that's kind of what I was mentioning before in terms of like, like what, what's happening with, you know, in a partner relationship where you don't have a narcissist in that relationship, you can still have reactive abuse because for instance, you know, one of the things that I used to do a lot, and it's something that I've come through a lot of healing with is I used to control my partner because I wanted them to avoid pain in the same way that I wanted myself to avoid pain. So I would be like, I would, I would figure something out that they were doing, right? Like he was, he would be fixing something or doing something like that. And I was like, you shouldn't do it that way. You should do it this way. You need to do it this way. Right. And I was like trying to control what he was doing. And, you know, he would completely either completely ignore what I was doing, or he might like, if I kept trying to intervene to do it too much, he would eventually like retaliate and just get like really angry. And then for me as a counterdependent, him getting angry at me, even though I felt like I was trying to do something to help him, right? Him getting angry at me would then cause like trigger reje rejection, sensitive dysphoria or any of the other things that you, that go on. And so, you know, then I would have a really strong reaction to being yelled at, even though I thought I was trying to help. So like, that's like an example of how beyond like, narcissistic abuse, how you can experience reactive, you know, kind of abuse. And, and it's interesting because we talk about trauma and abuse and narcissism. And yet trauma, as we've said in the past, it doesn't necessarily have to be abuse. And, you know, it's questionable in that example as to whether or not me trying to control him was abuse, but maybe it was to him. And maybe it was traumatic to him over a long period of time. It was a lot of tease. So it's like, you know, it we all have to like take all of this in a case by case basis sometimes. So like with the bigger stuff, yes, it's pretty obvious, but when it comes to our relationships, it may not be so black and white. And you really need to take who your partner is into account when you're kind of looking at these things. So I just wanted to say that real quick, cause yeah. it's, it's, it's important, I think, right. to kind of recognize that it's not just in our, like, if you don't feel like you have a narcissistic abuse, a person who's a narcissist or or does narcissistic abuse in your life you may be like well i don't even know what this is it's like but you probably do you probably do it just may not be so cut and dry mm -hmm. and then going back to the reactive abuse some experts advise to use the gray rock method which is where you act like a gray rock you don't react and you just kind of stand there while the abuser is doing their bad behavior but this can distort the victim's self-image that can actually cause the partner to escalate, right? Because they're trying to get a reaction out of you. So it can actually escalate to more dangerous behavior. So they say, instead of doing the gray rock method, you should really just try to leave because abusers are not going to change. And as I like to think of it is they rigged the game so you can never win because we got some messages about the trauma bonding. I wanted to just kind of go over the different types of narcissists real quick, if that's okay. There's five different types and how to spot them. I think that's great because I think it's important that we don't take it lightly, right? right? When we say someone might be a narcissist, there's a whole bunch of them and yeah. a whole bunch of different ways they express. Yeah.
And then if you go back to the previous season, we talk about internal family systems. I highly, highly recommend if you're doing this work to go back and listen to that episode, because I think it's really important here to understand that we all have a narcissistic part in us. Like we are complex. We have an internal family system. We have different parts in our mind, different conversations we're having. And all of us, every single one of us have narcissist parts. So when we're calling someone a narcissist, that's someone who's being primary led by their narcissistic parts. But we we also have them and they're, they're just led by theirs, right? So when we're calling someone a narcissist, I just want to be cl clear here. We're not saying that these are evil people, that they're bad. And if we look at it through the sixth dimension, like we are all one, they're part of us, we are part of them. And so we're not here advocating here to hate them or dehumanize them or demonize them. We're just trying to say, let's recognize them. And here in the 3D where you can't control other people and you need to protect yourself, get the fuck away from them, right? Yeah, yeah. It's okay. not necessarily your job to redeem them, even if they are redeemable. Yeah, okay. So these are the five different types of narcissism. Overt, covert, antagonistic, communal, and malignant. So overt narcissism is also called grandiose narcissism. And this is a person who comes across as outgoing, arrogant, entitled, overbearing, have an exaggerating self-image, need to be praised and admired, exploitative, competitive, and lacking empathy. So the person that I referred to a few times, who's like this, you know, spiritual leader kind of person, totally, totally overt narcissist, right? Because he's got the following, he's got people praising him all the time. He's got this like grandiose, you know, personality. Right. And he talks it. about why he is the one or the unique one who can handle something or why his, his, even though you may think that something's different, he's like, no, I know the truth. You have no idea. They're very switch, right? So mm -hmm. going back to the NLP episode, they're like the ultimate switch where they're just like, I'm overtly saying that what I think is actually truth and what you think is bullshit. Mm -hmm. uh, number two is the covert narcissist. And this has also been called the closet narcissist or the vulnerable narcissist. And they come across as having low self-esteem, a lot of depression, shame, introversion, low confidence, defensiveness, avoidance, and they have the tendency to play the victim. And like one good example of this is the man who cheats on his wife because he says, poor me, poor me, my wife doesn't pay attention to me. But really, he's ignoring all the ways he's broken the trust that she no longer wants to be intimate with him. So he focuses on her inability to, to want intimacy or to trust him, but he doesn't look at the ways in which he himself has broken trust, right? So these kind of narcissists are the kind who, no matter how you how they rig the game, they're always the victim, right? Yep. All right. Number three, antagonistic narcissism. This is a subtype of overt narcissism. And with this, there's a focus on rivalry and competition. There's arrogance, tendency to take advantage of others, compete with others, disagree or prone to arguing. Okay. Number four, communal narcissism is another type of overt narcissism. And it looks like becoming easily morally outraged. They describe themselves as empathetic and generous, and they react strongly to things that they see unfair. So they're not really interested in the well-beings of others. They're more interested in the like. And how it affects them, how the community fed, like or, what's happening to the community affects them. Right. Or how they even look, you know. Oh, right. 
so they're 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 overly i mean like i guess that's kind of a hallmark trait of a lot of narcissists is they're very concerned about how they look so they either want to look like the best or they want to look like the victim or they want to look like the you know they they want to look like the strongest one all of that is it's a lot about appearance right right like an example would be so many tiktoks about do not date a police officer do not marry a police officer they're like secretly narcissists i believe without knowing enough about it that they would probably fall into the communal narcissism right like they're outraged when people are bad like an extreme version of this would be the serial killer who targets prostitutes or something you know Right. Well, and I would also think that with police officers, a lot of that is necessary in order that you have to accumulate, you have to acquire that, right? Like even if you didn't necessarily had it, even if you if you you were recruited in because you wanted to do good, in order to be able to survive in that environment of having to constantly power over other people and be justified in you know basically constantly experiencing trauma you know there's also an argument that says that maybe it, it has a tendency to foster narcissistic parts right because that's what's necessary to survive so you know again going back to the ifs and the parts in terms of like how that comes out and the fact that maybe you know dick schwartz who wrote no bad parts he talks about internal family systems parts parts therapy has existed forever but his his take is there are no bad parts they come forward because they're here to protect us in some way or shape so in that case a police officer could be just operating on those narcissistic parts so on that communal narcissistic part so cool and what's the last one the last one is the malignant narcissist this is the most severe form and obviously it can cause the most problems being near someone like this or even for this person themselves and it shows up as vindictiveness, sadism. They get off on enjoying seeing the pain in others, aggression with interacting with other people, paranoia, or heightened worry about potential stress. They also share a lot of common traits with antisocial personality disorder. That's interesting. So what is, what is that one that they said about potential stress, heightened sensitivity to potential stress? Oh, the malignant heightened, heightened mm -hmm. worry about potential threats. So probably their ANS, their autonomic nervous system is just on overdrive, you know? Yeah. Which is, which is, that's probably something that they share with counter dependence, right? So hyper counter dependence is another way of saying very hyper independent, right? Like you're extremely independent because you're trying, you know, you have that kind of reaction to not wanting to do it, but you're not willing, you're, you're just withdrawing. You're not actually enacting mm -hmm. right and the, the only the only pain you enact is in your neglect if you choose to be in a relationship right and then within all these different types you have the narcissistic personality disorder these are just like subsets and there are nine symptoms if you have five of these you probably have a narcissistic personality disorder so basically you have five of nine of these kind of like put your finger down thing, but narcissists usually don't look into self-help. So I don't think any are listening to this podcast, but anyways, okay. So here they are. Number one, grandiosity and self-importance. Two, fantasies of success, perfection, or power. Three, a strong conviction of being special and unique. Four, a need for admiration and praise. Five, entitlement. Six, a pattern of exploiting others for personal gain. Seven, low empathy. Eight, envy, jealousy, and distrust, nine, arrogance, haughtiness, and scorn. Okay. Yeah. Like, I think I have, you know, one or two of these sometimes, but I don't think I have five. 
definitely don't have five. You yeah. Know? Yeah. But no, I'm I, sure I have parts in here that experience all this. Yeah. I definitely can recognize parts who experience a lot of that. And there's also, just so y'all know, there's like a really, really high, not necessarily misdiagnosis, but a, a correlation between different types of neurodivergence and narcissism. So what can come across as thinking that you're better than somebody else. So somebody can be like, oh, you're better. You think that you're better than everybody else. If you're autistic, it may be that you're just withdrawing from you're just not interacting because of awkwardness that you have with social interactions, things along those lines too. So that's, that's also, there's a lot of, well, actually there's not necessarily a lot of information. I've read a couple of different studies about those overlaps and how sometimes they can be confused. And there's even quizzes that you can take online, which we can put in the show notes where you can be like, am I autistic or am I narcissistic? I don't know which one. Right. So it's just kind of an interesting thing to kind of throw in there as well. Oh, I was going to say, if you're asking the question, chances are you're not a narcissist though. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So it's your turn now to talk about flight and freeze. Yeah, actually, I did just want to do one really quick thing about fight. So sometimes what we do is if it's not safe, like you actually have a naturally have a fight response. So, you know, classic Leo, right? It's like, you're just like, I'm going to have a total fight response or something along those lines. This is obviously not just only Leos. It's a lot of other people, but the idea is that I just know it so well with Leos is that you may have a fight response, but you don't feel safe saying it out loud. So you internalize it and it turns into a form of self-abuse, right? So I'm learning about this in the class with Jay Fields. I've been taking her Yours Truly course, which has been really amazing. And we're going to have her on again next season to talk more about nervous system regulation as well as she does a lot of stuff with parts work and things along those lines. But one of the things she talks about is our default mode network. Our default mode network is basically the internal voice, you could call it. And what happens a lot of the times is that if we've experienced significant trauma or significant abuse, our default mode network becomes toxic, right? So basically, you can think of it as like, you know, all the voices that are inside our head become very like negative towards us oh, we don't deserve that. Oh, I don't deserve to be happy. I don't, you know, things along those lines. It's almost as if like, I can just imagine it as like the default mode network is just a bunch of neurons that kind of become black and kind of corrupted over time when you don't have emotional resonance, when you don't have somebody, emotional resonance is when, you know, you're with somebody else and they're like, oh, I totally understand why you feel the way you do. And like, they validate your emotions, right? A lot of us didn't have that growing up, you know, if we have kind of prolonged trauma in this way. And so that's one of the things that happens that can happen in a stress response is that instead of you fighting out loud, you're actually just allowing your default mode network to just abuse you instead. Right. So you're, ba or, you know, you're basically turning it inward. You're turning that fight response inward and saying, God, you shouldn't have done that. Why did you do that? That's so terrible you know, things along those could, lines. So yeah. Could you give an example of that? Yeah. <laughs> it's like my whole life. So I can I definitely give an example of that is like, so say that you are in a fight with someone and, or no, say that you're in a regular situation and you know that the person that you're with is very, they're very sensitive to you, right? They're very, they don't like you very much. And you're not really sure kind of you're always on eggshells with them. Like you're always kind of just like, I don't know if this is going to piss them off or this is going to piss them off, but I know it's something that I'm going to do that's going to piss them off. Right. And you're just like, so you're kind of walking around on eggshells. And then at one point you just like relax a little bit 
and you're like, oh, this is going to be a normal, this is a normal person. I like, I forgot that this person, and I have to walk on eggshells. So you kind of relax a little bit and you kind of try to ask a clarifying question or you try and do something that a normal person would do, but you shouldn't actually do with this person. Right. And then what ends up happening is that then they blow up and they're like, why didn't you, why did you do that thing? Like, why did you relax? Basically, why did you relax? Why did you ask that question? Why did you do whatever? And then instead of being like, you're a psychotic bitch, right? Which is the outward fight of like, what the fuck? Like you're insane. You just say, God, you should have known better. Why didn't, you know, you turn it inward and your internal monologue starts going, why, why the fuck didn't you know better? Like you should have known not to do that. You've done this so many times. You're such a dumbass. How could you have gotten yourself into that situation again? Right. You know, you knew you were going to trip up that bomb. Why did you? Exactly. You should have known better. Like you should have read the room better. You should have not asked any questions. You should have gotten smaller. You should have done whatever the fuck it is. And I'm going to fight myself now as because it's just not safe for me to say it out loud. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's kind of another aspect of fight that I are you Libra Moon? You're Libra Moon. I am Libra Moon. Yeah. Okay. All right. Keep going. (laughs) Oh my God! You have to tell me what that means. (laughs) No, I just I just wonder if that something to do with that. Okay. Well, we'll just keep going. We'll do an astrology series another time. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. All right. So so I want to go. I want to talk about flight here, and you know, flight is one of those is a stress response that happens. And yet, you know, we talk about in the moment you can have a stress response, right? You can have a stress response and, and then you're like, Oh, got to get out of here. Right. So like, again, going back to the, you know, thousands of years ago with the Savannah and you have a lion who's attacking you, you can run away. Right. Or if you see a snake, you're like, I'm just going to run away. Like that's like kind of that initial response. But as we are complex humans, we've extended that understanding of our stress response to say that actually flight can be a very prolonged experience. So, you know, that flight is, uh, is technically another mobilization response, right? So instead of fighting, you're flighting, you're, you're, you become active, you become activated and your body's like, I'm going to move as fast as I can, but it definitely becomes a very interesting situation where, you know, your reaction is to try and get out of the stressor as fast as possible and you can and but then that stressor can start to become every situation right so this is kind of i feel like flight is kind of the classic counter dependency sort of thing so that hyper independent what creates that hyper independence is it's a prolonged flight experience Right. It can also be it can also be the other ones. Right. Like so oftentimes counterdependence probably experience freeze and flight probably of all of them, whereas codependents are more likely to do either reactive abuse in fight or codependent. But, you know, that's that's a generalization. We can experience all of these. So a counterdependent, for instance, flight, the long term association with flight is dissociation structural dissociation, which is basically dissociation and structural dissociation. Structural dissociation is a specific type of dissociation, which is like kind of a a more psychologist term for compartmentalization, right? Where it's basically like, I can't handle these other things. So I'm going to create a wall between me and this feeling. And I'm going to run, I'm going to, I'm going to close the door and I'm going to, I'm going to run, you know, I'm going to run away from it. Right. And it's even, even though it's in my psyche, even though it's like an exile or it's a wounded child or whatever you want to say, it's inside my psyche, but I'm going to, I'm going to flight by basically dissociating, actually dissociating from different aspects of my life. 
for those of you regular dissociation for those of you who are familiar is like that zony land it's what my kids call zony land it's when you just like it's like you leave your body right you're just like i'm gonna start staring at something and i'm not gonna be present and it makes it so that i don't have to be in this either stressful situation or a situation that i want anyway and so a lot of the time with you know when you have situations where you're talking about the different traumas that we can have. I wanted to take this opportunity to kind of just briefly talk about ACEs. So ACEs is something in which you can experience all the stress responses. And it was something that we didn't necessarily talk about in the first two episodes, but I think it's kind of really important. ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. And the reason that ACEs are kind of named in what they are is because what happens is that there's kind of a list of what are considered ACEs, right? And they come into three different categories, abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. Abuse can include physical, emotional, or sexual, or emotional. Oh, sorry, I already said emotional. Neglect can be physical or emotional. And then household dysfunction is things like mental illness, incarcerated relative, mother treated violently, substance abuse, or divorce, or the death of, death of a parent was something that we added. And the reason that it's kind of useful to know this or important to know kind of how many you have of these ACEs is because there are significant risk outcomes that come as a result of this trauma, of this stressor, of these kind of bigger developmental traumas that you experience growing up. So what they can lead to is you have an increased risk of you know, different behavior things. So lack of physical activity, smoking, alcoholism, drug use, missed work, physical and mental health risk outcomes that are increased are severe obesity, diabetes, depression, suicide attempts, STD, heart, heart disease, cancer, stroke, COPD, and broken bones. I think I was calculating, or it's not, it's not really a calculation, but I think I had six. Of what? Of the uh, I have six. I have six ACEs. And if you have three or more, that's when you can have a possible risk outcome that's different, which is why <laughs> it's so important that we're, you know, we're going to be talking about healing trauma the last, next time, but I just wanted to kind of throw that in this episode to just be like, this is why it's so important for us to like really drill down to the nature of our trauma because we need to deal with it. We need to, we need to look at it. And if we fight, if we flight, if we run away, from the experience of our trauma and we try and compartmentalize it and dissociate it because it's too hard we're not dealing with these aces in the way that we need to so that we do not have these increased risk outcomes mm -hmm. so that's kind of the point of why i'm bringing it up in flight is because flight in some ways can be one of the hardest trauma responses because we just choose to not deal with it right we just choose to just like push it away and you could also say the same thing for freeze, but you just choose to push it away. And because you're pushing it away, you're not actually dealing with the thing that you need to deal with so that you can kind of come to terms with this and like lower your risk outcomes in a lot of ways. So it's for your health. All right. And so the last one that we are going to do today is freeze. And that is the last of the four stress responses. And one of the things that we recognize with freeze is that, you know, <laughs> I see it all the time with my animals, not all the time, but especially when they weren't used to us, like when they get when they're in a stressed out response or something like that. The majority of all of the pigs that I have will flight, they will run, they will like they'll they'll try and get out of whatever it is. There's like usually one and usually like a dominant male that will fight. And then there are some that will, you know, 
there, I don't think there's any that fawn. I think that that may be more of a, obviously it's named after an animal, but I think that that's more of a, a domesticated animal, less of a, I mean, even though pigs are domesticated in this situation, I feel like that's more of a human or domesticated animal response. And then there will be that one pig that freezes, right? Who will just lay down and pretend like they are dead or that they don't exist or something along those lines. And it's really strange it's a really strange thing and what's happening when people when someone goes into freeze is that their parasympathetic system is actually their which is normally in charge of rest and digest is basically coming in and freezing their system because they think that there's an actual threat that is there and that the only thing that they can do is play dead it's like it's kind of like the last resort on the whole spectrum of the things that you can do in terms of what it is that you feel that you can do and so, you know, I talked in, in flight about kind of structural dissociation, and I kind of want to extend that to the fact that in some ways, when we dissociate from parts of ourselves, you could say it's flight because we're flighting, you know, like our active consciousness is flying away from, it's like running away from those parts that we don't want. But in a lot of, the, in a lot of ways, by compartmentalizing those parts, those parts become exiles. They've effectively become dead to us, right? So you can see how, you know, depending on how you want to turn the turn the kaleidoscope, you can kind of see how it can be freeze or it can be flight. And, you know, in more extreme cases of kind of compartmentalization, structural dissociation, you have a dissociative identity disorder, which is what a lot of people think IFS is when they first do it. But actually, all of these parts are recoverable, you can kind of bring them back and integrate them and kind of bring them back to life, so to speak. But what will happen is that sometimes these exiles when we're talking about IFS are, they're frozen in time, right? So kind of what I was talking about at the very beginning of the episode, when I was talking about trauma that I experienced is that like, whenever I get into an argument, with the kind of, you know, what I would consider my narcissistic abuser, what happens is that I, you know, the first thing I do is flight. I try and get out of the situation, right? But the funny thing is I'm trying to be reasonable with somebody who's completely unreasonable, but I'm always just like, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave the situation. And then usually they throw back, but this is your responsibility. This is your role, you can't leave. And I'm just like, but I wanna leave, I wanna leave. And then if I realizes that I have other obligations or there are other parts of me that like, you can't leave, because if you leave, like you, like you physically can't leave, it's going to cost too much money if you leave, you know, and you have a responsibility to this person to not leave. So, so now let's go into those frozen parts that are kind of, you know, let, let's kind of freeze parts of us. Like let's kind of make parts of us almost die or disappear. Right. So this is what I would call, this is what, when I was channeling last week was what I would call like auric suicide. Right. So it's like when you can't leave, you can't fight, you can't fawn. So what are you left to do? You're basically left to become as small as possible while you're still being in your body, right? You're effectively committing a form of suicide to your big self and to your whole self, right? So like, this is something that our teacher Charles talks about a lot where that like when we're relaxed, our aura is big and kind of bubble and rotund around us, right? Like it's kind of like it reaches out on our sides. But when we are scared or fearful, we just push that aura straight up and out and it becomes elongated. It becomes like column, columnar. And, you know, we're basically pushing ourselves out of our bodies. So that's like what I would call kind of a more extreme version of like, you, if you keep doing that over and over, that becomes like an auric suicide of some sort. 
I um, can't believe you used the word columnar. I've never, that's amazing. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those things where it was in my head and I could see it and I had to say it. But then I was like, I never actually said it out loud before, which you could hear that, but yes. So, you know, that's kind of an example of the different parts of freeze. So to kind of summarize, we're, you know, what we're talking about, we're talking about how exiles are frozen in time, right? And like I was talking about at the beginning of the episode where I felt like even if I am a 39 year old woman, if I'm in front of this person, I may as well be 10 because all of those wounded children that never got a chance to grow up who were frozen in time are basically coming out and they're the ones that are being put forward. Even if I'm trying my hardest to keep them behind me, you know, to kind of like be the wise adult and kind of keep them and protect them. Sometimes when you get so triggered, you're not able to do that, right? So that's one of those things is those exiles are frozen in time. You know, they're, they're experiencing a form of emotional arrested development, right? Where they can't necessarily go and all those protectors are maintaining that. And then, you know, we have this form of, of leaving the body, right? Of basically just like, I'm going to vacate the body. I'm going to be five feet above my body. I'm not going to, I'm going to be as small as possible because if I can die or suicide, then, you know, if I can basically, even if for a short time period, if I can basically be as small as possible, then maybe I'll be safe, right? Maybe, maybe if I basically energetically die for this moment or camouflage myself to be the smallest person possible, then it won't matter. And then we get into the, the kind of ultimate in that in which you're not just performing energetic suicide, but you're also performing suicide. So Anna, do you want to kind of say, say something about that in terms of, you know, taken to its extreme with a kind of combination, combination of another, another couple of different things, that's where we find forms of suicide. And the thing that we find though, is that that suicide is not necessarily actively taking your own life. Sometimes it can be passively taking your own life. Sometimes you have so much trauma in your life. And I can tell you that my mother is probably definitely one of those people. She had so much trauma in her life and she couldn't, she couldn't even access it, right? Like she couldn't even, I remember, you know, I remember learning years after the fact that, that she had, she thought, you know, she, she couldn't remember the sexual abuse that she had experienced. And so she was just, you know, but, but she knew it had happened. Right. So she couldn't access the memories. She couldn't access those frozen parts inside of her. And the search for it almost drove her to this like situation of getting very sick. And then obviously she eventually died as a result of that. She had a lot of light and she had a lot of, you know, kind of beautiful things. But at the same time, she was obsessed with this, this search for her trauma and the search for her frozen parts and, you know, ended up getting lost in that search. Mm -hmm. So when I think of freeze, I like to think of it in terms of like the energetic or spiritual component of you. So when you commit suicide or have an untimely death or you didn't fulfill your life purpose, et cetera, you can, when you die, go to this kind of purgatory place, which is a form of freeze. So we interviewed Joyce Anastasia, the NDE person earlier this season, and she did a session and she channeled my mom, which was really interesting. And my mom was basically like in this purgatory place where she was working through the guilt of all the failures she had done as a mother. She was working through that. So she like, hasn't taken on a new body. She hasn't reincarnated. She hasn't gone on. She's like in this purgatory place where she's working on, you know, making peace with herself. So I like to think of it. Yeah, we have the autonomic nervous system and all that, but we also have 
spiritual and energetic and mental forms of freeze. And so on that spiritual level, it might be that you get yourself stuck in a place. You know yeah. what I mean? And you, and you just, I do. Don't, you just don't move on. You're just not ready to move on. Right. And that's, and those are specifically, we were talking, you know, just before that about energetic kind of freeze, but obviously energetic freeze goes to its, you know, Zenith when you lose the physical body for one reason or another. And therefore, and if you're still, if you're still frozen, if you're still having to work through, you know, and, and in some ways I feel like maybe that purgatory, it freezes you from reincarnating, but actually it sounds like she's working through some of that stuff. Yeah. I Whereas mean, I, I would think like a pure freeze would be that you're just not even trying to deal with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it can have a lot of really long lasting effects and, and similar to flight freeze, especially because we have this ultimate capacity to be able to kind of splinter into all these different parts and have all these different exiles and have all these different protectors come up to protect them. It's super important that we, you know, we go and retrieve our frozen parts, you know, and that we, that's part of the work. That's the shadow work. That's the part of healing, right? That, that is super important here because you know, you want to be a whole and complete aura and not be out of your body and feel safe in your body. And so many times it is those parts that are constantly either pushing us out into a dysregulated state, they're pushing us out of our body, or they are, you know, or they're, they're kind of running the show and, and making it so that we don't even need a stress response to be out of our body. We're just out of it all the time. Yeah. Or arguably, maybe you're just in a prolonged stress response. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's freeze in all its complexity. And yeah, so that kind of goes through all the different, the four, we've now completed the four different stress response cycles, Fawn being in the first one, and then fight, flight, and freeze being in this one. So we've talked a lot we've probably opened a lot of doors we probably like you know could have made this experience quite raw for you to remind you of things but also hopefully conveying for you the fact that these are not irretrievable spaces and these are not you're not irredeemable because you've experienced these whether you've been on the per persecutor side or the rescuer side or the victim side of this coming back to the drama triangle and so i think it's really important that we remind you that we're going to be talking about how we're healing this trauma, all the different ways that we can heal it, whether it's using psychedelics, whether it's using, you know, therapy techniques or hypnosis techniques or other different types of types of more spiritual or esoteric things. But there are so many ways that we can heal our trauma. And we're going to be talking about that next week. Anna, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I just wanted to say that trauma happens, the big T and little t trauma and our reactions to it. That's all happening in the 3D and on the 6D, like in the ultimate, through the lens of the ultimate big picture, we could say it all is happening for us. It's providing contrast. It's why we're here on this earth to experience the suffering and to experience all this. And, and, and it's like, I feel like I'm not doing a great job of it right now, but I feel like it's kind of like, you have two feet in two different canoes on a, on a lake of water. Like that's life. It's like, I got one foot right now in the 60 being like, wow, all this stuff that happened 
was great because it provided contrast for me and it helped me go deeper. And then my other foot is in the other canoe and it's wobbling and it's like, it fucking sucks to be in this 3D level and be confronted with trauma. So if you're listening to the series and you feel like you've got two feet in two different boats and you're just trying to not fall in the water, I totally get you because that's how I've been recording this series. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Thanks, y'all. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Spiritual Fix. We will have our final concluding episode of this trauma series next week where we're talking about healings. So please be sure to tune in. Thanks so much. And remember, humility, gratitude, acceptance, done. Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer... One girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.